Well, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And in today's passage, Paul calls us to do some things that feel impossible. He calls us to do some things we feel like we could never do that. We could never live that way. But what I want to tell you is that these are possible and that we can live that way. Not because of our power or spirituality. We are way too weak to do what Paul's talking about here. It's not about us. But it's because of what Jesus Christ, the living, resurrected Jesus Christ, does in the hearts of everyone who trusts him. Now, let me give you some background. God created us. You're not here by accident. God created you so that you could have the joy of knowing him. That longing you have in your heart for joy and meaning and peace and pleasure, it's only satisfied in knowing God through Jesus. That's why you're here. God created you so you could have the joy of knowing him. We've all turned our backs on God. Bible calls that sin. We've refused to bend the knee before our creator. We tried to find other sources of joy that would satisfy our hearts. None of them worked. We've been left empty and we've been left guilty because of our sin against God. But God loves us, cares for us. And so he sent his own son, Jesus, to be born of the Virgin Mary, to grow up, to teach, to work miracles, and then to go to the cross and pay for the sins of everyone who would trust him. So when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, everything changes. Just like what Tom was sharing this morning. Heart of flesh, heart of stone is taken out. New heart is given. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, your sins, all of them are forgiven. And Jesus gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is he makes the presence of God real to us in our hearts. He helps us to not just know, but to feel God's love, behold God's glory, experience God's majesty. And finally, for the first time ever, our hearts are filled. We are content. We have found the joy we were created for. So we're filled, but then God promises us, the more you love other people, the more filled you're going to be. That is, you've got the living water, gift of the Holy Spirit, first time you drink of this living water, for the first time you are satisfied and filled, but then God says, there's more. The more you live in love, the more you love other people, I'm going to give you even more living water, now and forever. So this is the biggest one I could find. We, we do have 40 liter ones at home, I think. But anyway, pick, picture big ones, okay? So, so when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you're filled with living water for the first time ever. And then Jesus promises, now the more you love other people, the more living water you're going to have right now. More joy in me right now and forever. And when we're filled and we hear that promise of more, that completely transforms our hearts. I mean, just feel it. You've been thirsty from the moment you were born. Finally, you're filled. You're drinking the living water. You know God through the person of Jesus Christ. And then God promises, now the more you love, the more living water you're going to have right now and forever. And when we understand that we're filled and that there's more, we start to love in ways we never thought were possible. 
Our hearts are transformed and we love in ways we never could have imagined loving. Now, let me give you an example of that from the life of Zacchaeus. How many have heard of Zacchaeus? Okay, read your Bibles. Okay, Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was a very wealthy tax collector. He'd heard about Jesus. Jesus was coming to his town. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but Zacchaeus was short in stature. So we all know the story. He climbed up into a tree so that he could see Jesus when he walked by. So there is wealthy Zacchaeus in the tree waiting for the crowd to come by. Here they come, and Jesus walks right up to the tree and says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Today, I'm staying at your house. And Zacchaeus was thrilled, and he came down. Now understand, Zacchaeus, like I said, was very wealthy tax collector. And like all tax collectors at that time, was a dishonest man who stole money from people, um, squeezing out of them more taxes than they owed. It's common practice back then. So Zacchaeus came down. Jesus went to his house. Zacchaeus spent time with Jesus. And after spending time with Jesus, Zacchaeus stood up and said something that shocked everyone who was listening. He said, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded, stolen anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now imagine giving away half of your net worth. Where did that come from? And on top of that, paying back everyone you've stolen from four times as much. Now, why did Zacchaeus do that? Understand the dynamics of what was happening in his heart. Jesus Christ had changed Zacchaeus' heart. That's why he did it. Zacchaeus knew money has never satisfied him. He knew that. You know that. Money had never satisfied him, but he just, maybe another million more is going to do it, right? It's kind of the, the treadmill we get on. Zacchaeus knew money would never satisfy him, but now he'd met Jesus. He had trusted Jesus, and Jesus had given him the gift of the Holy Spirit, living water, and for the first time he had drunk, and he'd experienced knowing God through the person of Jesus, and for the first time his heart was filled. And then he heard Jesus' promise. The more you love other people now, trust me, love other people, the more living water is yours now and forever. And that transformed Zacchaeus' heart. So he gladly gave away his money, which was not satisfying him, because he now had what was satisfying him, and he wanted more. You see how that works? That's the story of Zacchaeus. And that's why we will be able to do what Paul commands in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 and 29. And that's the only way we will be able to do what Jesus commands in Ephesians 4, 28 and 29. Let's look at those verses. In verse 28, Paul talks about how Jesus' living water transforms our work. And in verse 29, about how Jesus' living water transforms our talk. I've called this sermon, Work to Give Money, Talk to Give Grace. Let's start with verse, let's read 28 and 29 together, and then we'll dig into one at a time. Verse 28, Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, 
doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now let's start by asking, what does Paul say about work? Verse 28, and he says three things. Okay, first, Paul says, we should not steal. Beginning of verse 28, right there, let the thief no longer steal. Okay, so if anybody hears a thief, Jesus would say, stop stealing. Now, how's that gonna be able to happen? How do you stop stealing? Well, it's because if you're living as a thief, here's what's going on. You're not trusting Jesus. And if you're not trusting Jesus, you're not forgiven for your sins before God, and you've not received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So your heart is empty. You know that. Being a thief is leaving you empty. It's not working. But when you do trust Jesus, you'll be forgiven for being a thief and every other sin you've committed. You'll be reconciled to God. Jesus will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, the living water, for the first time you will drink and experience knowing God in the person of Jesus, and your heart will be filled, and you will hear the promise that the more you love other people, the more living water, you're saying, this is the only thing that satisfied me is living water, I want more living water, and if loving other people is going to bring me more living water, I know that stealing isn't loving other people, I'm going to stop stealing and start working. You see how that works? That's the transformation that Jesus brings about. So Paul says, let the thief no longer steal. Now, even if you're not a thief, I thought it might be helpful to ponder some ways that we can steal without thinking it's stealing. Can we do that? Yes, we will. Uh, we can steal time from our employers, right? Like if your boss wants you to be there at 8 o'clock and you know he's going to be gone for a few days and show up at 8.30. You've just stolen from your company. We can steal money, padding the expense accounts, different ways of doing that. We can steal things, like if you're using company property for something not related to company work, right? So be cautious about things that are stealing that we wouldn't necessarily call stealing. But that's the first thing Paul calls us to do. We should not steal. Second, we should do honest work with our own Hands. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. God has called you to work, right? Honest work, that's, that word is also translated good. It means simply work that's productive and beneficial to other people. So God calls you to work. If you are in construction, God's called you into that because you're benefiting other people. If you're a nurse, God's called you to that. If you're a teacher, health and safety inspector, pilot, whatever it might be, God's called you to that work. Understand, your work as an accountant is just as holy as my work as a pastor. Do you understand that? Just as holy. It's what God's called you to do. It's what God's called me to do. We do our work. It all goes well. God's called you to do work. Now, Paul was an example of this. He supported his, tent, his church planting ministry with tent making. So he made tents and sold them, and that, that supported his church planting ministry. And Paul says something very powerful in the book of Colossians. He says, we should work hard at our jobs because 
We're not just serving our boss or our company, but because we're serving Jesus. It's Jesus that we're serving in our jobs. Now, I just want to throw this out because this could transform some of our attitudes about work, okay? How many of us need... I want to ask that question, okay? We, <laughs> we need attitudes. So if you are a nurse, it's Jesus who's calling you to care for that patient, right? Do this. Take care of this patient. That, doesn't that just change everything, all right? If you have a very unfair and unjust boss, standing behind him is Jesus saying, ignore him. I'm calling you to do whatever he's calling you to do. Change your attitude, okay? If you're a teacher, it's Jesus who's calling you to teach that class. Whatever job you have, think about the part of your job that you like the, the least. Yes, yes, it's Jesus calling you to do that, okay? And he is worth it all isn't he? So, oh, let that just profoundly transform how you work. So God's calling us to do honest work with our own hands. But that's not all that Paul says here. Third, we should work so we can give to the needy. Verse 28, read the whole verse. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that, now underline those two words, so that, here's the reason we work, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So Paul is saying that Jesus so changes our hearts that the reason we work is so we can give to other people. So when we put in the hours at work, when we're solving problems at work, when we're putting up with difficult people at work, what's in our mind is, I'm going to have some money to fund a church plant in Kuwait City. I'm going to have some money to help this brother in my home group who's struggling financially. I'm going to have some money to help out Syrian refugees. That's what's in your heart as you're working. But that doesn't come naturally to any of us, does it? No, it does not. I mean, what's natural is that we're, we're, we're solving that problem at work. We're, you know putting in long hours at work, or putting up with this person at work so that we can have a nicer place to live, or so that we can have more money in the bank, or so that we can go on a nicer vacation, right? <clears throat> right, okay? But Jesus changes us, and he has you here, he has me here working on this sermon this week because he wants to use this scripture to change us. When we trust him, we're forgiven for all of our sins, and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the living water, and for the first time, our hearts are satisfied. And we know that this living water quenches our heart thirsts far more than a nice place to live or far more than more money in the bank or far more than a nice vacation. Then we hear Jesus promise that the more you love other people, the more you give to other people, the more living water you're going to have. Hmm. This satisfies me more than anything. And the more I give to other people, the more I'm going to have. Hmm. We find ourselves starting to want to give as much as we possibly can. Now, let me give you an example of where Jesus says that the more we give, the more joy we'll have. Look at Luke 12, 33 to 34. So I would encourage you to, to memorize these two verses. It's been powerful for me to regularly meditate on this and say, Lord, Take this deeper into my soul. Luke 12, 33 to 34. Here's what Jesus said. Sell 
your possessions and give to the needy. This is a, he's saying this to the crowd, not to one person, just to the crowd. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags, yes, but money bags that do not grow old. Provide yourselves with a treasure, yes, but a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is not saying, notice in this passage, give from what we have left over. This is a very stirring, radical passage. He's calling us to sell some of our possessions so that we have more to give, right? So he's calling us to lean into having less. Just lean, have, have, lean into having less so we can give to the needy, so we can care for the poor, so we can advance the gospel. Now, why would we do that? It's because Jesus promises in this verse, when we do, we're providing ourselves with money bags that do not wear out, right? They don't grow old. Well, what money bags don't grow old? Money bags in heaven, treasure in heaven, right? What treasures don't fail? Treasures in heaven. So we're increasing our treasure in heaven, our joy in God forever. And other passages show that it starts now and goes on forever. So that's why we want to give then. Jesus promises that the more we give in Jesus' name, the more joy in him, the more living water we'll have in him now, now, and even more forever. Okay, get the picture. Now understand, it's not that we stop providing for ourselves and our families. Jesus calls us to do that. Are we clear? Very important, okay? Yes, he calls us to do that. It's not that vacations are wrong. We need rest, right? But Jesus wants us to understand simply this. The more we lean into giving more for the advance of the gospel and for the care of the poor, the more joy we will have in him now and forever. Now, just a little side road here. I want to clarify something very important. It's not in this passage, but it's all through the rest of the scriptures. Our giving more does not earn more joy in Jesus from God. It doesn't earn more joy. Because even at our best moments of giving, our best moments of, of obeying, we are still tinged with sin, right? So even our best moments of faith and obedience and giving in this life, we still need the cross and Jesus' righteousness to cover that. So understand, the only reason God can reward our increased giving is because of Jesus' death on the cross. So it's all Jesus, all his glory, all of it, and yet still God promises, in my mercy, God says, because of Jesus' death on the cross, I will give you even more joy now and forever, the more you love and the more you give. So the promise is true, but it's not earning. Very important. Are we clear? Even the reward is grace. Even the increased joy is like, I don't deserve this. Glory to Jesus. See how that works? He gets the glory. We get the reward. It's beautiful. Now, let me give you an example of how some believers in the early church did this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. This is another astonishing passage. 
we aren't sure exactly why, but believers in Jerusalem were really struggling financially. They were in a desperate place financially, these believers in Jerusalem. And the churches north of, well, northwest of Jerusalem, over in Macedonia, Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea, those churches heard about these, church, these believers in Jerusalem that were struggling financially. And look in this passage at what those believers in Macedonia did for the believers in Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4, Paul says, we want you to know, he's talking to the Corinthian believers now because he wants to stir them to do the same thing that happened in the Macedonian believers. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Underline those words. That's where this all comes. It's God changing our hearts by his grace through Jesus. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia is northwest of Jerusalem. For, here's what happened in these churches in Macedonia, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Now, let's just stop there for a second. Their abundance of joy, we get that, and their extreme poverty. Wait a minute. How, how can you have abundance of joy when you have extreme poverty? Living water. That's why. You do not need money to have abundance of joy. Listen, you know right? Money's never given you abundance of joy. Getting it is first, this is going to be awesome. It's never awesome, okay? Whatever you get from it, it becomes old after a while. It's like you need something new. That's how it always is, right? Not so with living water. All, he who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes me will never thirst. So how could they have abundance of joy with extreme poverty? It's because this was where they were drinking, all right? So in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. So these believers in Macedonia, north of Jerusalem, also were in extreme poverty, right? And what happened? Have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, they wanted to do this. And this next line is incredible. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Okay, so they were in extreme poverty themselves, yet they had abundant joy. They'd been forgiven through Jesus. They knew God. They were drinking the living water. They knew the presence of Jesus in their hearts and lives. And they knew God's promise that the, the more you give, the more you love, the more joy you're going to have. So they were begging Paul, please, Paul, please let us give to the believers in Jerusalem. Please take our offerings. Please, we're begging you earnestly for the favor of doing this. The believers in Macedonia are living what Jesus commanded back in Luke 12. You see that? They knew what Jesus was saying in Luke 12. They're experiencing what Jesus is saying in Luke 12. And so they're Abundance of joy with their extreme poverty moved them to beg Paul, let us give. That's the same kind of thing Paul's calling us to do in Ephesians chapter 4. When we have the joy of being forgiven by Christ 
and we receive the Holy Spirit and our hearts are filled for the first time with a joy that nothing else can compare to. And then we hear the promise that the more we love, the more we give, as a gracious, not as a re- earned reward, but as a merciful reward, the more joy we will have now and forever. When we understand that, when we feel that, we will want to give as much as we can. So that should be in every believer's heart. Oh, I want to give. I want to give. I want to give. To help people to have more joy in Christ. Oh, I want to give. So, so think about this. When you get paid for your work, when you get paid, How much of your joy is because now you have money to care for the poor, to advance the gospel? How much of your, we're all happy when we're paid, right? So how much of that joy is because now you have more to care for the poor and to advance the gospel? I would guess for many of us, this might be a brand new thought. And that's okay. That's why we're here. We're reading the Bible. All right, we're studying the Bible. So what can we do? Don't make the mistake of thinking you just try to grit your teeth and try really hard to do this because that's ignoring the way that Jesus supernaturally changes our hearts. That's how this happens. So what we can do is we seek God's face. We pray and say, I'm not feeling that at all, Father. Forgive me. Help me now. Pour out your spirit upon me afresh. Give me a fresh drink of living water so I'd be completely satisfied. And then help me to really see and understand the truth of that promise that the more I love, the more I give, the more you'll pour out living water upon me. Change my heart. And then we open up the scriptures because it's the Holy Spirit gives us living water as we see Jesus in the scriptures. So we're praying over the scriptures. We're drinking afresh. Our hearts are filled. We want more. And then our hearts will be changed. And you will find that you will have more and more joy when you get your pay. You'll have more, more and more of the joy of that will be because there's a brother in my home group I can help out now. Here's a, a church that's struggling that needs my help. Here's a way we can advance the gospel at Grace Church. Whatever it might be, God will lead you for where that money should go. That's how it works. When we seek God's face, drink of the Holy Spirit, trust his promise for more, we will want to give away as much as we can. Now, you might be thinking that would be a miracle. And it would be. And it will be. As we take this verse to heart and say, Lord, if you can do this in me, I want it. Bring it. And he will and your heart will be changed. So that's what Paul calls us to do about our work. Don't steal, work hard at your job so that you can give to the needy. Now, what does Paul say about our talk? That's the next verse, verse 29. This is equally shocking when you think about it. If you think about what he's really saying here, look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So verse 28 was work to give money. Verse 29 is talk to give grace. So Paul says three things about our talk here. First, none of our talk should be corrupting. Now what would corrupting talk be? Well, I found an example just a couple verses later. Look at chapter 5, verse 4 of Ephesians. Here's what Paul says. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, 
which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Okay, three phrases there. Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. All of those are examples of corrupt talk. What is filthiness? I just think it's probably referring to language that's vulgar or obscene. That would be filthy, filthiness. Foolish talk probably refers to making fun of something we shouldn't make fun of. Now, there's a place for good humor. Some of you are really funny, okay? It's a gift from God. We love humor. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Foolish talk is when you're making fun of something that you shouldn't be mocking. And then crude joking would include like sexual jokes, bathroom humor, that kind of stuff. So that's all example of corrupt talk. But also not listed here would be under the category of corrupt talk would be like gossiping, um, complaining. Um, what else did I write down here? Boasting, arguing. All right, those are all examples of corrupt talk. So now back to Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. So that kind of talk is corrupting. Now what is, corrupts what? What gets corrupted? Well, here's the picture that I had. Imagine that you're in a group of people and uh, you're going to talk about something and, and Paul would want you to understand every person in that group is going to spend their eternity either in heaven or in hell. There's no third option. Everyone in this group, we're all living forever in one destiny or the other. And the only way we can go to heaven is if our sins are forgiven by trusting Jesus, by faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul would want us to understand that corrupting talk can destroy the faith, can, can weaken the faith of the people that are listening. Corrupt talk can distract the faith of the people who are listening. Corrupt talk can water down the faith of the people who are listening. That's why Paul has no mercy for corrupt talk. He says, no corrupt talk should come out of your mouth. None, zero, zilch, no corrupt talk. Why? Because it's corrupting. It will corrupt the people that listen to you. So how do we do that? How do we stop corrupt talk from our mouths? I mean, you could think I'm just not going to say anything. I'm going to check myself every 10 minutes. Did I say anything corrupt these last 10 minutes? Have somebody, there's all, and those, those aren't bad, I suppose, except for not saying anything. That's not, not a good idea. But all those ignore the way that Jesus Christ supernaturally changes our hearts. Remember, Jesus said that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So if you want to change the words, we need to have the change in the heart, right? Because every word flows from what's happening deep inside in the heart. So think about this. If your heart is full of humble joy in worshiping Jesus Christ, your Savior, and God the Father who sent him, if, if your heart is full of humble joy, can you speak obscenities while your heart is full of humble joy? Is that psychologically possible? Can you mock somebody while your heart is full of humble joy? Can you complain about something while your heart is full of humble joy in Christ? Do you see? That's impossible. You cannot do that. It's psychologically impossible to speak corrupt talk when your heart is full of humble joy in Christ, when you're drinking of, of living water, because his presence will fill and satisfy our hearts. So see, that's how to overcome corrupting talk. 
It's by seeking the Lord to change our hearts. So that's the first thing Paul calls us to do. He says, none of our talk should be corrupting. Now, the second thing is our talk should only build up. That's, just keep reading verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Now, what's building up? Well, building up in some versions is translated edification, and it's used in this context to describe building people's faith in Jesus Christ. So our words should not corrupt, weaken, water down people's faith. Our words should build up people's faith in Jesus Christ. So I thought to myself this week, what kind of conversation builds up people's faith in Christ? And I, I just made a list. Here's my list. Conversation that asks someone how they're doing can build their faith. Conversation that thanks someone for what they're doing, right? If you're, giving, if you're thanking someone, thank you for doing this, that can build their faith. Conversation that weeps with someone who's struggling, that can build their faith. Conversation that affirms someone for their love and their gifts. I just wanted to tell you, you are such a servant in so many ways. That, that can build their faith. Conversation that reminds someone of how good God has been to them. Just to, let me remind you, God has so blessed you. I'm so grateful for what he's done in your life. That can build their faith. Conversation that thanks God for his blessings. I'm so thankful for what God did. It worked for me this morning. Let me tell you what happened. That can build their faith. Conversation that shares God's promises, right? Conversation that praises God for his mighty works. Conversation that gives somebody biblical wisdom. Conversation that lovingly challenges someone. That can build their faith too. That encourages someone to trust Christ. So see, these are all examples of the kinds of conversations that can build up other people's faith. Now you might think, really? I mean, is that, is that really going to do anything if I have this kind of conversation? And Paul says yes because of his third point. Our talk can and should give grace to those who hear. Okay, read all of verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. This is amazing. Remember the first time I read this verse and thought about it. My words can give grace to people that are listening to me. Now, what is grace? We're talking about God's grace here. God's supernatural grace. We're talking about God's comforting grace, God's strengthening grace. I made another list. God's encouraging grace, God's correcting grace, God's protecting grace, God's faith-building grace, God's forgiving grace. Your words can give God's grace to the people that are listening to you. Whether you're talking to one friend or to a, a group of friends, Paul wants us to have as our goal that they would each leave with more of God's grace in their lives than when they came because of my words. And the picture that I've had before is it's kind of like we can speak words, it's like a little balloon of grace. It breaks on Okay, not corrupting, but grace giving. Your your words. Think well, not me. I've only been a Christian for a few months. Your words, all of us, all of our words in this room, as you're trusting Christ, can give God's grace to those who hear. So, is that your goal when you're talking to people? Often, that's not our goal, right? So often our hearts are empty. We haven't been drinking lately. 
So often our hearts are empty, and so to fill up our hearts, our goal is to impress other people by our conversation, right? As soon as they finish this story, wait till they hear my story, right? We try to fill our hearts by putting other people down. It gives you a, just this dark sense of pleasure when you put somebody else down in a conversation, right? It does. Why we do it? Criticizing other people, mocking other people, flattering other people. They're really going to like me after I say this, I'm trying to fill my heart. Complaining about other people. Misery loves company, all that stuff. So you might think, well, if I can't do any of those, what am I going to talk about? Right? And it's not that we just stay silent. That doesn't accomplish the goal here. Paul wants us talking. But I would encourage you again to try this. Don't shortchange the supernatural heart change that Jesus Christ can bring about in us. This will change your heart, and because the mouth speaks out of the fullness of the heart, when your heart changes, your words change. So start crying out to Jesus for more living water. I need a fresh touch from you, God. Pour your spirit out upon me afresh. I want to love you. I want to love your Holy Son. And you open up the scriptures and you, you pray over the scriptures and the Holy Spirit will work so that you will see and feel the glory, the majesty, the beauty of your Savior, your friend, your Lord, Jesus. And when you do that, you're drinking living water and your heart thirsts are satisfied more than they can be satisfied by anything else. And you hear Jesus promise the more you love, the more living water you're going to have. And when that happens, your heart will be full and loving, and your goal will be to give grace in the conversations that you have. And why is this so important? Because they need grace. But think about it like this. In that group of people you're talking with this morning in the coffee, or you're having coffee out there, or you're having lunch, or whatever you're doing, somebody in that group might have just gotten very bad news from the doctor, right? That's why your words are important. Somebody in that group might be thinking about leaving his wife. That's why your words are so important. Somebody in that group might be smiling, looking like it's all fine, but they might be feeling far, far, far from God and feeling desperately hopeless. Somebody in that group might not even be trusting Jesus Christ yet and think of what your words could do and what a balloon of grace could do dropping over them. One of them might be about to make a very foolish, harmful decision. One of them might be discouraged about their life in general. Yes, even though everybody's smiling and it all looks fine, that's what very well might be going on in people's lives. And your words, your words, your words can give them God's grace. What an amazing responsibility and what an amazing calling God's given to us. And what a mercy, God, with it, that he would use us to give his grace to other people through the words that we speak. Amazing. So work to give money, talk to give grace. Now, what does this mean for us? Let me give you two takeaways. First of all, I hope you're seeing this morning how Jesus' saving work and his heart-satisfying work supernaturally changes our hearts. So it makes no difference how 
unspiritual you're feeling right now, how full of anger you might be, how bitter you might be, how empty you might feel, doesn't make any difference. It's not about you and your heart. He brings everything to your heart that you need. It's his saving and his satisfying work. He will do the work. When we turn to him and trust him, he saves, he satisfies. So I want you to ask yourself honestly, have you experienced, are you experiencing Jesus' saving and satisfying work? Are you? And if you're not, we love you. And we'd encourage you, he will bring you his saving and satisfying work. What do you need to do? How many Fridays do you need to go to church before that can start to happen? You know, how, how good do you need to be? None of those. Right now, you can turn to Jesus Christ. He's here by the power of the Holy Spirit, the resurrected Jesus, and you say, Jesus, I trust you to forgive me through your death on the cross. I trust you to change me by your power. I trust you that you will satisfy me in yourself as you've promised to do. I trust you. And as you pray that and mean that in your heart, supernatural change will start to take place. You will drink for the first time living water. You'll be satisfied like never before. You'll hear his promise about more coming the more you love and your heart will be changed. And that can take place right now. Right now. As you are. Right now. That's the first takeaway. See how Jesus' saving and satisfying work changes our lives. Second takeaway, pick which of these areas you need to work on. Just pick one, okay? Both of them be too much. Just pick one of them. Focus on which one you need to work on the most. Is it your view of, of working and money, or is it your view of talk and conversation? And do you see how counter-cultural both of these verses are? They are shocking. But this is what Jesus is calling us. And he doesn't just call us. This is what Jesus will enable us to do. We cannot do this on our own. That's the first step. I cannot do this. Oh, I found it so helpful these last few weeks. God's just been helping me see this more clearly. Lord, I can't do anything you're calling me to do today myself. Help me. I'm just a dried up branch in the road. You're the vine. Got to abide in the vine, okay? If, if any fruit, I, anyway, it's so helpful to pray that way because it's so true. And then he, he's glorified then when he works in that way. So Jesus can and will do this as you ask him for his help and as you seek his face and his word, he will pour his spirit out upon you afresh, satisfy you afresh, and change your heart. And then when Jesus changes us, we will work in order to give money. And we will talk in order to give grace. So let's pray. Father, I ask for your power to come upon us in an increased way right now. You know what's in our hearts. You know the unbelief that might be there. You know the doubts that might be there, the reasons we think this could never happen. And if you have unbelief or doubts or reasons you think this can happen right now, just ask Jesus, Jesus, would you help me to believe you? Would you strengthen my faith? I turn to you as I am right now with my doubts and my feeling like I'm the one person this will never happen to in this room. I turn to Jesus and say, would you help me right now? He will. He loves to strengthen the faith of weak people like us. 
See, he brings us everything we need. You don't have enough faith? Ask him for more faith. He'll give you more faith. He'll change your heart. He does it all. We just come and we say, help us. And he will. So Lord, I pray that you would save people right now in this room. I pray that you would satisfy people right now in this room. I pray that you would change us so that we would work and a, and a large part of our joy would be that we can give money for the glory of your name to help the poor to advance the gospel and that we would talk to give grace to the people around us. So work in our hearts, Lord, now as we worship you with this song.